Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hey, everybody. Uh, Got a great one today, you know, for a change. And this time, I mean it. Because this time, I finally have a guest who has a harrowing personal story that he can tell us about in an entertaining way. Jason Kander is my guest. If you pay close attention to national politics, you may very well know Jason from his uh, 2016 race for the U.S. Senate in Missouri, a race he lost by just 2.8% to a longtime incumbent Republican, Roy Blunt. Hillary Clinton lost Missouri by 19 points, Jason outperformed Hillary by 16 percentage points in Missouri. Jason made a viral ad that cycle. He was the guy who assembled an AR-15 blindfolded while talking about the need for background checks. He, He could do that because he had been an Army intelligence officer who served in Afghanistan. Now, I'm going to play the audio of this ad, just the audio. Of course, this is this is a podcast. Now, it's set in a empty warehouse the key here of course is he's blindfolded and the most impressive part of the ad is is of course the visual he's assembling an ar-15 blindfolded but i want you to listen to the audio for for two aspects of of his performance first his voice his delivery very steady no nonsense perfectly pitched but i also want you to listen to the assembly of the gun, his assembling the gun. As a performer myself, I was so impressed with his timing. It's it's very subtle, unless you're paying attention. He times the delivery of his lines and the assembly of the gun so that the loudest maneuvers occur in holes in the dialogue. And he does that for clarity and, and for emphasis. I'm Jason Kander. And Senator Blunt has been attacking me on guns. Well, in the Army, I learned how to use and respect my rifle. In Afghanistan, I volunteered to be an extra gun in a convoy of unarmored SUVs. And in the state legislature, I supported Second Amendment rights. I also believe in background checks so that terrorists can't get their hands on one of these. I approve this message because I'd like to see Senator Blunt do this. That's talent. That's that's talent. That's the kind of talent that lets a U.S. Senate candidate beat the top of the ticket by 16 points. And that caught the attention of national Democrats, including Barack Obama. Now, not that long after Jason's narrow loss, 
Obama met with Jason and made no secret that Jason could very well be our strongest candidate for president in 2020. And that catches your attention when you're 36 years old. After his loss in 16, Jason had started a popular podcast, Majority 54. He formed a voting rights organization, Let America Vote. Uh, was traveling and speaking all over the country, including in early primary states like New Hampshire, where he was being enthusiastically received. The only problem was that, as it turned out, Jason was amazingly fucked up, suffering from severe PTSD. And that is the subject of his current New York Times bestseller, Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD. You'll gather from this podcast you're about to listen to that Jason and I are friends. And I will tell you that before he announced that he was taking a break because of his PTSD, I thought that Jason was the most together person I know. And wow, wow, was I wrong. The book is harrowing. During his campaign for state legislature, for secretary of state, for the Senate, he's walking around his house at night with a gun thinking someone's coming to kill him and his family and scaring the shit out of his wife, Diana, who is also, by the way, a spectacular person. It is an astoundingly honest book, one he could only write after getting therapy at the VA for his post-traumatic stress. It's an amazing book. And all that said, this might be the most fun interview I've ever done. Also fun have been the January 6th hearings in a different way, of course. Uh, This past week, we had two more witnesses who served in the Trump White House and uh, ended up appalled by him. It it sure took them a while. You know, I I could have told them that uh, a while back and saved them a lot of trouble. Uh, There were signs along the way that he was kind of a bad guy, you know, and uh, not so subtle either. I mean... What does it take for these people? And why didn't they come forward during the second impeachment? That was the moment. That was the moment to stop this guy. All these people who have testified know who Donald Trump is. If they had come forward after January 6th, our country would not be in the peril it is today. And we are in peril. We are in one of the craziest, most perilous moments in our history. We had a moment after January 6th to put a tourniquet on the wound to staunch the bleeding, and these people could have provided it. Eric Hirschman, the guy who told Eastman to get a good fucking criminal defense lawyer. Pat Cipollone, who was in the six-hour meeting with Giuliani and Sidney Powell. Bill Barr, who told Trump he lost and then resigned. Bill Stepien, Trump's campaign manager, who watched Trump claim he won a a landslide on election night after he told him it didn't look good. Pence's guys, Greg Jacob, Pence's counsel, and and his chief of staff, Mark Short, who saw the crazy pressure he was putting on the vice president, acting attorney general Jeff Rosen, who Trump wanted to replace with Jeffrey Clark, and, and Sarah Matthews, Matthew Pottinger, from this past week, Cassie Hutchinson, if any of these people had come forward after January 6th and just made public what they saw and what they heard, we would not be where we are today. Our democracy would not be at risk. 
Sure, praise them for finally showing up. Well, maybe that's easy for me to say. Perhaps they had PTSD themselves. We got a great one today, you know, for a change. Jason Cantor. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that, means, that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. As you know, I love the book. I, it makes me very happy every time you say that, so thank you for saying it. A lot. I really appreciate it. I really like the book. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> more, um, Al. More. <laughs> well, as you know, you can't get enough of it. Anyway, exactly. you know, because uh, you have PTSD. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, <laughs> okay, so this book, uh, which I just, I just, this is fucking great, this book. Invisible right. Storm. And uh, I w I'm tempted to have you and I read the prologue, and I just read the other oh, yeah, Okay. You want to try that? Sure. Where do you want me to start in here? You're On just October 1st. Okay. <laughs> For real? <laughs> yeah. And let's see where it goes. And then. All right. <clears throat> prologue. On October 1st, 2018, I walked into the Kansas City Veterans Affairs Medical Center and found my way to the small one-room office of a veteran service officer. Only two people in the world knew what I was doing that day, my wife, Diana, and my campaign manager, Abe Rakove. I wrote my name on the sign-in sheet, pinned to the wall outside, and fell into line behind a handful of other vets, some young, some old, leaning against a wall in a hallway that doubled as a makeshift waiting room. All of us were new patients waiting to be enrolled in the forbidding maze that is the VA system. Twenty minutes later, an overworked gentleman in a red American Legion polo shirt emerged from the office, glanced at the sheet, then looked up at me. His eyes widened. Whoa, he said. <laughs> yep, that's me, I replied. 
My new friend began to go through the mental health intake questionnaire. Over and over, I found myself saying yes to his questions, and within minutes, he said, It sounds like you need to see somebody today. The next thing I knew, he led me down to the emergency department and left me with a triage nurse, a very warm, older African-American woman. She gave me a little slip of paper to fill out, and there were two questions on it. I answered yes that I had had suicidal thoughts, and yes that I had experienced intrusive dark thoughts for 10 years. So here we go. I said, yeah, there we go. The nurse looked at my form. 10 years? I nodded. Honey, where have you been? The one place where you don't want to be famous is in a psych ward. And as I went, <laughs> and as I went through intake, I caught staffers suppressing double takes when they recognized me. I say, obviously, this was kind of humiliating. So finally, after about half an hour, when a psychiatrist, a young resident, came into the room, and it was evident that he didn't know who I was, it was a huge relief. And then for the next 30 minutes, I confessed everything I'd spent years hiding from the world, my night terrors, my consuming fear of someone hurting me and my family, my ever-present anger, my unrelenting guilt and punishing shame, my inability to feel joy, and my increasing dislike of myself. I told him how much of a burden I'd become to everyone around me. To my surprise, he seemed to take it all in stride. He asked what I had planned for the rest of the day, and I said I had to go pick up my son, True, from school at 4.30. That's good, the doctor said. Which I took to mean, if you're making plans, you're not going to kill yourself today. Uh, But maybe he wanted to double check. He reviewed his notes. He looked up at me and he asked, Do you have a particularly stressful job or something? (laughs) Now, I was used to introducing myself dozens of times a day, but it hadn't been a real introduction for years. It was more like a pantomime of humility. When I said, hi, I'm Jason Kander and I'm running for, I was usually flanked by people wearing t-shirts with my name spelled out in giant letters. So I said flatly, I'm in politics. And he seemed curious. What, uh, What does that mean? I thought about listing off my resume. Should I start with my time serving in the state legislature, being elected Secretary of State of Missouri, running for the U.S. Senate in 2016 and just barely losing? Should I talk about getting ready to run for president, giving speeches in 46 states in the past year alone, or how I decided to run for mayor instead? I figured I'd just cut to the punchline. Well, I almost ran for president, but then decided to run for mayor instead, and tomorrow I'm planning on calling that off. You were going to run for president. The doctor blinked a few times. Uh, Of what? He looked confused. In fairness, you would be too if you were a psych resident and some random 37-year-old and ill-fitting scrubs on suicide watch claimed to be a presidential candidate. I knew it would sound silly to answer his question, but I did. Of the United States. He looked skeptical, or maybe he was suppressing a chuckle. Who told you you could run for president? At that point, I went from feeling mortified that everyone else had recognized me here to feeling irritated that this guy didn't believe me. I don't know what to tell you, man, I said. I mean, I spent an hour and a half talking it over one-on-one with Obama in his office, and he seemed to think it was a pretty good idea. The doctor sat back in his chair. Barack Obama uh, told you you could run for president. He tapped his notebook a couple of times with his pen, then pursed his lips. So uh, how often would you uh, say you hear voices? <laughs> and that was my first day at the VA. <laughs> that was fun. That was fun. That is the second skit you and I have done together. <laughs> That's right, right. We did one when I was in Kansas City when I was on tour there. So he asked me to put out uh, like a tweet for this book, and I said, uh, Jason Kander, to me, was the most together guy I had ever met. But it turned out he was completely fucked up. <laughs> yeah. you, to, to your credit, you sent it to me first to be like, is this okay? And what did I say? He said, if you don't 
put that out, I will not, won't be your friend again. Or yeah, I like said that. if you don't, <laughs> if you do not do that verbatim, word for word, we are not friends. Uh, but you lost by what? Less than two points or two points? Two point eight. Two point eight, and Hillary lost by how much in Missouri? Nineteen. Shit. Yeah, so you lot. beat the presidential, our presidential candidate by sixteen point two points. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Yeah, Trump won Missouri that day by more than he won Mississippi. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, and uh, you'd be up for re-election in your second term, and you'd still probably have PTSD because you wouldn't have gotten treated. Well, I'd probably be dead. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, it's not. It's like I don't spend a lot of time revisiting what could have happened because I'm like. I wouldn't okay, let's get to the chase on how fucked yeah. up you were. Um, okay, and we should go backward now. You served in Afghanistan, intelligence officer, mm-hmm. and you write about almost getting killed. Um, or just feeling feeling like you're going to. Yeah, you read about it in the book. He's he, As an intelligence officer, describe the, the scene where you thought you would die, possibly. Very, very, very possibly. I mean, you know, it was just... The way it worked was, I mean, there's a few in particular, like meetings with bad dudes that I talk about in the book. But in general, um, my gig was I went out and I met with people who we couldn't really know what their allegiances were. And it was just me and my translator most of the time. And uh, and if not, if there was more, it was like a couple more guys. And then, you know, you're just outgunned and outnumbered and nobody knows where you are. And so, like, if it goes bad or it turns out it was a trap, like you're pretty well hosed. And so that's, that's what my existence was. But my, my problem, well, I, <laughs> a problem was that when I came home, I was convinced that, well, it wasn't like, it, like what I saw in Black Hawk Down. So it's not combat. Right. You were an intelligence guy, so you weren't in firefights. But there was this one situation in which I think you, you thought you might die and in you came about a second away from drawing yeah. your gun and shooting, and at that point you probably would have died. And, yeah. <laughs> and what what it, it takes you like four fifths of the fucking book to have somebody finally tell you, mm-hmm. you know that it's actually <laughs> was just as bad as being <laughs> that's that's as bad as being in a firefight, yeah. buddy. Yeah, and. One of the interesting things about writing the book was the device that I used, which it's funny, I've mentioned this at like some book events and you can see people go, oh, yeah, because they don't realize it when they're reading it. But I didn't uh, allow myself as the writer of the of the teller of the story to avail myself of any of the language I gained in therapy until I'm in therapy and you like learn that language with me. So like up until that point, you're just experiencing the confusion and the symptoms with me, which allows the reader to sort of understand what it's like to actually have untreated PTSD, as opposed to just having it explained clinically through the whole book. Okay. So the fucked up part, you couldn't sleep. Uh, you walked around the house with a gun. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, I mean, it. you were fucked up. And what's great also is that Diana, your wife, who I love and know, writes about how horrible was <laughs> <laughs> we are really selling this so far like it's it's treacherous. oh my <laughs> uh, my lord yeah well <clears throat> yeah there's a few things that i think are really unique about that right like one 
if you're getting the vantage point of the guy who doesn't know how fucked up he is and is like explaining to you how much danger there is around him, well, at some point, if you're the reader, you're going to be like, what the hell, man? So it's important to have her come in in the first person in each chapter for a page or two as an additional narrator to be like, here's what I was observing of Jason at this time. But then gradually what happens is, is she ends up with secondary PTSD. Even without having gone to Afghanistan with me, she ends up with a lot of the same symptoms just by living with me. I'm, I'm just such a treat, Al, over these many years with her. Like, how God, she's a lucky one. Uh, well, also, it wasn't that gradual, it seemed. But anyway, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she developed this. Yeah. But it was a horror show. And once again, I'm going to go to I thought you were the most together guy. And so did people in Missouri. And so did Barack Obama. And so did the other senators who helped you out as, as well and got to meet you. And you were the most comfortable you were, I would think, uh, right, on, on the campaign trail. Oh, I yeah. think you say that. Not that that was healthy either in terms of you talk about your work ethic there, but it's almost like that was an obsession as well. Obviously. That's how I self-medicated, right? Is it was, that was, right? That's how I avoided what was going there, on. There, that's the language. Yeah. That's the language. And, and that's, that's how I avoided what was going on in my head. And one thing I think it's good for us to point out at this point for people who are like, God, am I going to buy this book? Uh, there's also jokes <laughs> and, uh, and there's some, pretty, Oh yeah. Parts. Cause you know, the gallows humor, man. I mean, no, you're, you're, you're at, you're, you're, it, there are, there are laughs in this, but mainly I was horrified. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's got a happy ending here. I am. It's got amazingly great. Uh, cause uh, this guy, uh, you, you got very lucky. You got a very good therapist mm-hmm. who knew what he was doing. And I think guys in the v- VA do right. Yes, and that or a lot of them, right? At least you know my sample size is very small, but it's. But look, I also am exposed to a lot of guys uh, who I work with and stuff who have also been to the PTSD clinic at the VA, and like, yeah, you know, the VA has all sorts of problems, but the vast majority of the problems the VA has are about getting access to the VA. Once you get access, once you're in with a clinician, it's actually really, really good. How many of these clinicians are veterans themselves? Are they? I don't know. I don't think it's that common because like, you know, I mean, well, I guess, you know, in my case, like I I saw one guy who wasn't and occasionally uh, like I would go to see this other guy who was, but, but I think most of them are, you know, look, they're PhDs or MDs. And so most of them, you know, spent that time in school, but there are a lot of people, like a lot of people you encounter at the VA in different roles are veterans of some kind. Um, but they, like, the thing is, is like Nick, my therapist, you know, he's very good at his job, but also there was never anything I said to Nick where he was like, well, that's weird. <laughs> you know, like everything I said, he had already heard from somebody else sitting in that chair. And that's really what was so attractive about the VA. And that was also help. I mean, obviously helpful to you. How how long were you in Afghanistan? Four months, which I got hung up about for. Oh, you totally. Years. You call yeah. it stolen valor. That's what you thought you you were doing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was. I thought if I say I have PTSD, it's like stealing valor. Like four months, I didn't get hurt. I didn't have a bullet go by my ear. You know what I mean? So yeah, it took me a long time. It took somebody at the VA saying like reciting everything I did back to me. And also asking me, like, 
well, what do your friends who were in firefights and stuff say when you talk to them about what you did over there? And I'm like, well, they always say they don't know if they could have done it, but like, they're just being nice. And she's like, dude, they're not being nice. Like, she's like, it was traumatic. And she's like, you're a combat veteran. And it was like, I had to hear it as if she was talking about somebody else and then realize, yeah, if somebody, if somebody described somebody's four-month deployment to me the way she just accurately described mine, I'd be like, yeah, that person has PTSD, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so it, but this is 10 years, right? Between yeah. serving and finally getting help. Yeah. And so, you know, but like <clears throat> the, the whole second act of the book is like, it's me having this meteoric political rise while also being pretty convinced I was an irredeemable piece of shit. And what's interesting about it, and I still haven't really figured this out. I think you can credit my parents for this is that my self-confidence never flagged. Like there was never a moment where I thought like, maybe I'm not as good at this as like I was the whole way. I, I, I was just like, I'm the best at this. There's almost nobody who's as good at, as me at this. But I also, my self-esteem was like getting worse and worse the whole time. Cause I was also like, yeah, I'm really good at this. But I only, but I suck as a human. And the reason I keep doing it is because I'm trying to redeem myself. Like I would just take every, I'm compensating for being a piece of shit. Yeah. And that's what you want from a president. (laughs) Well, I, uh, I believe I, I, uh, I ended up leaving this out of the book, but I, I, cause it just, I couldn't figure out a way to write it where it really worked. I could only deliver it. And so I've used it in several of these interviews, which is I've said several times in these, you know, Al Franken said to me after I was getting help and everything, he was saying, you know, you could have broken that glass ceiling of president who kills himself in office. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot that I said that. It was really funny. That's a great joke. Well, it was when I, I don't know if you remember, like I was working, before I decided to write a book, I had this really bad idea, which was I was going to go do a stand-up set, my first ever. I had some pretty good stuff, like this stuff about Talia, my dog, you know, you helped me with that. And which a lot of the the way you and I crafted that made it way its way into the book. Uh, and then I had talked to Sudeikis too, and he had given me like some buttons as well, like help me on him. Jason Sudeikis. Then uh, I think you gave me a great icebreaker that I was going to use in a set, which is I was going to be like, I was going to come up and be like, look, um, yeah, you remember me. I'm suicidal, um, but you know, no pressure on the applause. Uh, and, <laughs> um, and then I think it was Sudeikis who eventually convinced me. He was like, dude, I like what you're trying to do here. He was like, but you're not a comedian. So people won't take it that way. So if your first public comments, you know, after, you know, disappearing for a while, are you being sarcastic and ironic, like they won't be taken that way. You'll be quoted with all this stuff. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> so I didn't do this, it. This but. is a better way. This book. Yeah. It turns out <laughs> this was a better, this was a better way. It's oh, a but, beautiful book. It's a beautiful should, book. Well, I appreciate it. We should revisit what I thought was the best joke you and I had come up with, which, which I didn't also end up using, but would have been in that stand-up set, which is where after making the joke about the uh, glass ceiling and president who kills himself in office, uh, <laughs> we were rolling through presidents who, who might've. And then I think you, we came up with finishing that riff with, 
and Trump, we hope. Anyway, was he still in office at that point? Or yeah, or yeah, it was like twenty. Coping? It was like twenty seventeen. Or no, no, no. I'm sorry, twenty nineteen. <laughs> yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. And by the way, I don't wish that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, uh, let's put that disclaimer. It's a terrible there. thing. Yeah, it would have been in a stand-up act. See, completely different context. Well, not only that, but with Trump, it's pretty believable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but well, this did. was Sudeikis's point, right? Like, if you're not <laughs> yeah. actually at a comedy club, people won't take it the right way. And he was right. Like, even on Al Franken's podcast, people will take it the wrong way. Oh boy! So, oh boy! Yeah. Anyway. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Jason Kander. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. We're back with Jason Kander. Let's talk about what you're doing now, because I, I I went to visit mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. Uh, veterans. He's been, been a big center. supporter. We appreciate it. Yeah, uh, in Kansas City, and that that's the first one. How many are there now? The, explain what, what it is yeah. and all that. Yeah, mm-hmm. so um, I. I'll even back up in the story a little bit uh, mm-hmm. because in the third act of the book, as I start to get better, one of the things that happens is um, in order to get access quicker uh, to the VA, I go to a nonprofit in my town, Veterans Community Project, that I had toured when I when it was looking like I was going to be mayor. So they gave me the tour and I'd been blown away by it. And Veterans Community Project does two major things. One, uh, operate outreach centers for any veteran to come in and get hooked up with any kind of service that uh, they need. And then the second thing, and what we're much better known for, uh, is to operate um, villages of tiny houses with wraparound case management services to transition homeless veterans out of homelessness. Um, and so uh, I went and I, I like right after the meeting with the guy thought I was uh, delusional and they had told me it was going to take a few months for me to get into weekly therapy at the VA, I ended up calling Brian Meyer, who's been on this podcast with me. He said, come on in, man, just come back in here. So in, so six weeks after getting the VIP, you're going to be mayor tour. I went into front doors of the outreach center, like thousands of other vets. And a week later, they had me in weekly therapy at the VA. That helped a lot. And then after a few months, VCP had been so successful in Kansas City that all these other communities around the country were like, hey, can you guys bring it here? And I was kind of giving some advice to the to the founders uh, of like how they would do that. And finally, Brian was like, hey, man, you ain't working. You seem to be doing much better now. It's been a few months. <laughs> he was like, you're hanging around here all the time. Why don't you just come here full time? So it's been three years now that I've been the president of National Expansion, and we uh, are moving into uh, the Denver area. We've been serving vets for about a year there, and we're, we're building a full village there now. 
We are building a full village, full campus in uh, in St. Louis, which will start serving people and housing folks there in the fall. And then we are now, we've broken ground in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. We just bought land in Oklahoma City, and then we got some others on the horizon. Amazing. Now, and yeah. I, I wear, it's, it's my go-to sweatshirt, and but I can't read in a mirror, so I forgot uh, Veterans Community <laughs> Project. Uh, VCP, because I, I can never remember names of agencies and stuff because every word sounds like every other word. I yeah. mean, you know, Veterans Community Project, okay, could be any three words, <laughs> veterans, and then I can't remember anything, but Veterans Community Project. And I went there, you took me there, and the most impressive thing I came away with is you have these small homes, right? Mm-hmm. What are they called? Tiny homes or small homes? What do you call yeah, them? Yeah, tiny homes. Tiny homes, but they're all completely self-sufficient. You have a kitchen, look right, little kitchenette, mm-hmm, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. bathroom, whole deal. Yeah, shower, whole, whole, whole deal, whole deal. But what I love that the thing is, because this is got for people who had PTSD, when you look out a window, you can't look into anybody else's house, and no one can look into yours. Yeah, it's all built trauma informed. So the bed faces the door. There's this extra layer of privacy, and it's all about transitioning folks off the street and back into you know living among other people and eventually so that they can then move into an apartment or a house. What I think is really, there's a lot of things about it that are pretty genius. And I didn't design the system, obviously, but like I get really excited about it. And, and one of the pieces that I think is most exciting is that it really restarts the military to civilian transition back at day one. So whether you've been homeless for like a week or homeless for 20 years, we're just going to act like you just got out of the military yesterday. We're going to treat you with a lot of respect. We're going to treat you like somebody who served your country. And we're just going to start that process again. And because that's really, in most cases, where things broke down. Remember when I uh, went there and uh, I I was jogging around a little and... <laughs> As anybody who has uh, hung around with Al will tell you, is that sometimes you just are kind of like his translator. Like you just, you know, he, Al makes a joke and sometimes the joke, you know, lands great because people are prepared for a joke. But if they're not in the situation where they think a joke is coming, you then step in and what you do to translate is you say, he's joking. Uh, so <laughs> that's that's what I did when you asked our lead case manager, uh, when he was showing you the... Um, training kitchen, you aghast looked at him and said, you let them have knives? <laughs> Which I thought was very funny. And he looked very confused because he well, was he looked like, a little hor- uh, offended and horrified, didn't he? <laughs> a, little, a little bit. A little, a little bit, but also like combined more with... More confused. More confused, I'd say. Combined with like Okay, I'm already a little nervous because this is Al Franken. And now he said this thing that is so dumb. <laughs> do I correct him or do I just let this go? And that's when I jump in and say, he's kidding. Yeah. A lot of jokes are, I'm going to say, the dumbest thing possible. <laughs> yeah, sure. Right? <laughs> it works on me, man. I- <laughs> yeah. I'm going to. It turns out this former senator is really stupid. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, I, I can't remember the others, but there were several of those. Were, yeah, um, I can't either. That was my favorite, though. Yeah, <laughs> that was the best one. <laughs> anyway, that's what I do now. Oh, and they do great things. There's a guy, and and you know, it's just like the dentist who who volunteers and has mm-hmm. like a full fucking dental suite there, mm-hmm. right? That he that he donated. Yeah. 
I, that's one of the things about it that's so cool is that you know we raise all this money. Uh, we have to. People can go to vcp.org and donate. But what we don't spend it on because we run so lean is stuff like dentists and mental health providers because we lean on the community to do that. We become the place where if you want to help veterans, you you come and you do it through us and we're the channel for all of it. I, I always refer to it as the Jumbotron model, which is that feeling you have where you're at a ball game and they put a veteran on the Jumbotron and everybody stands up and applauds. And then it's sort of like, is that it? Like, it feels like there's more we could do. And I, I always say VCP is the answer to, it feels like there's more we could do. Okay, enough of promoting your fucking group. <laughs> yeah, back to promoting my fucking book. <laughs> the, the, That's what my, we're here for. Yeah, all of my royalties from which go to my fucking group, Veterans Community That's Project. That's true. So. Invisible Storm, <laughs> a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD. It's an amazing book, Great Journey. Yeah, I, I when I turned in my draft, my my first like, okay, I've finished the draft. I turned it into my editor, and I said, uh, "Do they give out Pulitzers for oversharing?" <laughs> this is you don't hold anything back. Yeah, it is not a not your typical political memoir. You're not like, well, wow, this guy. This this is the whole way through. You know, it's not packaged. In fact, I had a one friend who had read it and was like. Yeah, I'd like you to give yourself a little more credit in this section. And I actually ended up putting in a paragraph where I gave myself a little more credit. because uh, So, it was the opposite of the first book. Right. What was that? Do you remember what that was with the credit was, you gave yourself? I think this is very healthy, by the way. Yeah. I think you're... you're <laughs> I, I want to hear this because I think this is probably a very healthy thing. You're, I think you had a good friend there. What, yeah. what was the uh, credit you gave yourself? It's something like I still kind of struggle with at times, which is I ran for office because I cared about the things I cared about and that you and I both yes, care about, yes. right? right. But, but then after going through therapy and learning that I had run for office at this breakneck pace, partially because I was chasing this redemption mirage and you know out, trying to outrun myself and, mm-hmm. and self-medicating, then once I got a lot better and once I got to the point where PTSD was not disruptive to my life, the thing I couldn't really sort out for myself was how much of what I accomplished was me being a person who wanted to accomplish those things and make a difference for people and how much of it was me doing things to try to convince myself I wasn't an irredeemable piece of shit. And so- the passage that's like one paragraph that I did eventually put in the book that I somebody convinced me to go ahead and give myself credit for, which was I got to a point where I realized like the things I cared about, voting rights and democracy and you know veterans care and all that, that I cared about those things because that's how my parents raised me to be. Yes, I may have worked extra hard at it because I was outrunning myself, but that doesn't mean that I have to take away those pre-therapy accomplishments from myself. And so I, I kind of finally settled in a place where I mostly am, and I don't wrestle with too often anymore, of like, all the, did I really accomplish these things or was that the monster? Was that PTSD driving me? And, and I, I feel like I have a better answer to that now. Um, so are you ever going to, uh, you know, take Obama up on uh, you'd be the best candidate for president <laughs> again? <laughs> I mean, you, how many years will it take you to uh, maybe say, hmm, but you're not thinking about that now. You're just thinking of playing baseball and raising your kids, right? And, That's pretty and, much right. And, yeah. yeah. It's, it's funny how um, whenever 
you tweet about me or I tweet about you, if I look at the replies, I have to look pretty close to figure out whether they're talking to you or me because every damn reply is, please run. I don't know whether it's you or me every time. So we both experience that same thing. You know how every politician says, like when they don't want to answer the question of whether they're running for something new, mm-hmm. they, they go, uh, I'm sure we've both done this. Uh, well, you know, that's not what I'm thinking about right now. Like mm-hmm. I, I said that a million times. <laughs> right, right. And you know what's funny is that is 100% what I was thinking about right then. Um, so that was not true. <laughs> um, and now I can say it and actually mean it. And mm-hmm. the way I explain it in the book is, and in my life, is that, you know, I went all those years where the present was like intolerable. Like I, I couldn't be alone with my own thoughts. And so naturally, I was living in the future. I was, I was like obsessively planning what I could do next and, and that kind of thing because it allowed me to avoid myself. And the difference is now, like, like you mentioned, I'm coaching True's Little League team. I'm, uh, you know, playing in an over 30 wood bat baseball league with guys who were like pros and college players and just trying not to get hurt too much and trying to hit and all that. And it's super fun. I love it. And I'm, you know, I have this great job and, and I still get to feel like I'm, a part of things politically because I can pop up and say what I want to say when I want to say it. And people will put me on TV when I want to. And I have a podcast, a uh, good point to plug my podcast, majority 54. Yeah. I can, Great. I can do all that stuff. I scratch that itch, but I don't spend time thinking about the future because I'm just having a really good time and that's new to me. And so, you know, I don't rule out that I, that, you know, Diana and I may decide to run for something like mayor or president or something at some point, but it's like, it's it's funny because I think that there are people who assume that I'm like just itching to get back into it and like this darn PTSD keeps me from it. And it's, <laughs> it's actually the opposite. It's like I'm so mentally healthy right now that I'm like, I don't I don't have a desire to do that. But I'm like, you know, that desire, not for a lack of mental health, just like as my kids get older or whatever, that desire may return. And if so, I might run, but it may not. And that's OK, too. I'm cool with that. Yeah, how old is your um, it's daughter, right? Bella will turn two in September, and, and then she you was know, just a baby last time, and yeah, I can't tell. Yeah, it's okay, dude. That who knows, Gender. right? But you know, <laughs> but you know, true, uh, who uh, true, yeah, because you chased him around the house, which he still talks to people about that after he tricked you with the uh, the way the fridge works. Like he still tells people because he thinks that our fridge, the way the water comes out, because it's confusing, is a booby trap. And so he he always gets people with it. And he watched you, but you're the only one who, once he got you, you turned and acted very angry and chased him around the house. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> and he loved that. But anyway, yeah, so I'm having a blast with, you know, being a dad and a husband. And, and, uh, and also, th- this stuff that I'm doing now, you know, actually – modeling post-traumatic growth and demonstrating to people that that is an actual thing and that not all PTSD is the PTSD porn you see on TV or in the movies. It's not mm-hmm. just people, you know, beating their spouse and, and that kind of thing, uh, that there's actually like, if you get treatment, you get to get better most of the time. Look, man, I mean, I'm sure you agree with me between that and the Afghan rescue stuff I've been able to do. I have impacted way more people's lives and way more change out of office than in office. I should have mentioned that you were once we uh, pulled out there, you stepped forward. And of course, you knew a lot of people as an intelligence officer who were helping you. And yeah. there were many of those people who helped us who were stuck there. Yeah. And it was, you know, I'm one of, there's a couple thousand of us, at least around the country, who have stayed really involved. 
in you know Afghan evacuation efforts, and it's been like it's been newly traumatic. And like I, I actually had sort of my I, I went through a, like a new little trauma regimen with Nick, my my therapist, just on this stuff at Dinah's suggestion. And actually, like an hour ago, we kind of finished our, our last therapy appointment for this, where we kind of agreed, like, okay, I think I'm back on like a good even keel now where it's not disruptive, but it wasn't like triggering. It was like traumatic, you know, to go through that. But, and I never intended, like I didn't set out. I thought it was going to be a few days and ended up, it's been like 10 months, but you know, we've, we've saved a lot of people's lives. And that's the kind of stuff where if I had been in the Senate or whatever, I don't, I don't know that I'd have gotten the chance to engage like that and get that done. So. Well, uh, pretty much every one of my former colleagues saved thousands of lives every Every, every week. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's right. I, yeah. I read the press releases. I know. Yeah. <laughs> that's a fact. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I, I, this is either an amazing either the episode best of your podcast. Or <laughs> <laughs> the best in, uh, podcast you've done or, the, or easily the worst. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.